0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, as well for the prayers of all those who are gathered here, the prayers that were mentioned and many that weren't. Thank you, Father, that we've had this dedicated opportunity over so long to meet together and study, not in, not just in this study, but in the ones we've done before, Father, for years now. And we thank you for that consistent and regular opportunity on Wednesdays. We know, Father, others would uh, desire to be here at times in the past and in the future. We would expect as well others who are called by your spirit to study and to be in fellowship around the study of your word and they would seek that here if they could, if they knew about it perhaps, or if they had uh, opportunity given to them in their schedule. and I pray Father, you would make those things happen. that tonight, Father, as we come close to the end of Isaiah, we would uh, continue Father to have the same diligence and, and open-mindedness and, and uh, heartfelt interest in your word that we may have had in the beginning. And we pray we would see it through, Father just as Paul teaches, Father, that we are to run the race to the end and in every way we walk and and serve you, and not the least of which is in your studies. Thank you, Father, for the chance to do that tonight. And I pray the Spirit would be at the center of all we say and do so that he may guide us into all righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're finishing the second section of 2nd Isaiah, the part we've called Suffering Servant, Looking at Christ. We have one chapter. Tonight in that part of the book, that's the first chapter 57, but then that will give way to the last section. What's the last section about the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit takes the foreground in the final section. Now, remember, several things here come together. Isaiah in general, second Isaiah as well, consistently points forward in prophetic terms to a future day that is still future even for us. The last days, in other words the days of the end. He gives us more depth, more information, more insight about the kingdom and about what happens around the kingdom. We've seen this over and over again. And he talks specifically from Israel's point of view, how Israel is going to be judged in the time of tribulation, but lifted up in the end, how they'll be the center of the world in the millennium, but they'll be the most hated of all nations in the tribulation. That theme reaches its climax in this third section, this last piece of 2nd Isaiah, all the way to the end of the book. There is an outline to 2nd Isaiah, to what we've been looking at this whole time. These three parts, the Father, the Son, now the Spirit. There's an outline. Remember where the outline came from? It's from Isaiah 40, verse 2. When we started 2nd Isaiah in chapter 40. And I'll just read you the verse. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her. And here's what she was to be told. That her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, she has received of the Lord's hands, double of all for all her sins. The three things that Isaiah was going to teach in 2nd Isaiah was the warfare had ended, that her iniquity had been removed, and she had received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Remember that first night in 2nd Isaiah, I had that big thing on the board where I broke down the various ways you can divide up 2nd Isaiah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These are three other ways. Warfare has ended, iniquity removed, paying back double. We studied how the father was the one who brought warfare against Israel for her disobedience and that warfare will end at some future date. That's the father's piece. The middle one, the one that is the son, the iniquity being removed. You see how those work together, right? That's the role of the son to remove iniquity. The last piece is receiving double of the Lord's hand for all her sins. That's the Holy Spirit piece. When I tell you that the theme of the Holy Spirit's peace is receiving double for her sins, Israel receiving double for her sins, how do you connect that to the Holy Spirit? Well, first, you know that that refers to tribulation, or we we should know that that refers to tribulation. The period of tribulation, seven year period on earth, is a time that God designates to come upon the world because of Israel. Now, it's obviously going to affect a lot more people than just Israel. That's a given. But it is because of Israel that that period of time exists. We hear that back in Daniel, for example, when he describes the sevens that are going to come, across, uh, come against Israel and so on. So there is an intent for this period of time that is focused on Israel, but it consumes the whole world. It comes principally under the, beha- under the actions of the Holy Spirit under the Spirit's movement in many ways, as is depicted in the book of Revelation specifically. But the Spirit's work during that seven years is the principal focus of this section. Because we're going to read through so much Scripture tonight as we go through all these chapters, I'm going to teach a little differently in style. I'm going to try to provide an overview of each section before I read it. Then I'm going to provide a kind of running commentary in the text as we read it. Pausing here and there, but moving through it in that way. So here's my overview of 57. The first half of 57 is just a continuation of what we saw at the very end last week in 56. You remember last week? The very end? 56 made that abrupt change toward the end to a discussion of the corrupt leaders of Israel. The corruption, in other words, of the nation itself began with its leadership. That's a theme, by the way, of Scripture wherever you go. It's a constant theme in the Old Testament prophets. It's a theme in the New Testament in the Gospels. Jesus himself is always seen uh, laying the blame for the blindness of Israel at the feet of their leadership. The Pharisees, for example. They're culpable for leading Israel astray. He starts at the end of 56 talking about the nation of Israel being corrupt because of their leadership. Now in 57, we see the fruit of that evil. What is the result of Israel having evil leadership? It will be what you see described now in this chapter. And the chapter is framed by an opening and a closing that are both very intriguing. Verse 1 The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart. The devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace, they rest in their beds. Everyone who walked in his upright way. The righteous man here is Abad. He is perishing, according to my translation in verse 1. In Hebrew, Abad means obliterated or given up for lost. Another way to think of it is one minute they're there, one minute they're gone. Obliterated. Why are righteous people being obliterated? Why are righteous people taken away? What answer would we have for that? The rapture. This is an Old Testament reference, a fleeting one, somewhat ambiguous. You wouldn't know it if you weren't already familiar with the concept of rapture, of course. But this is an Old Testament reference to rapture. To a moment in which the righteous are taken away. And notice in verse 1, while no one understands. Not only do they not understand, it never makes an impression upon them such that they learn something from it. No one takes it to heart. No one changes their behavior. The world isn't made better because after the day the rapture occurs, they wake up and realize oh my goodness, there is a God and he's, he is the God of the Bible. No, that doesn't happen because of the rapture. What does that do to your frame of thought regarding the text? It puts you in a frame of mind or in a certain time frame before you go further in the text, doesn't it? You know when the rapture occurs in eschatological terms. You know it comes right before tribulation. You know that it's a time compared to the time of Noah in the Bible. People are eating and drinking and given in marriage and and being married and then suddenly destruction comes upon them like a thief in the night, like the days of Noah. So we know the rapture is itself a greater fulfillment of what is pictured by God's taking of Noah and his family and putting them in the ark for seven days before the coming of the water. They were being taken away from evil. They were being separated out and no one understood. So the Picture that's building, even in just those opening verses, is of a timeline similar to what we know has happened in the past and to what we know is coming when there will be a a time God moves the righteous out of the way so that he can begin to bring judgment upon the rest of the earth. So that sets our mind to a certain point in time where you know you're thinking tribulation as you read the rest of the text. Verse 3 But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. He's speaking here of Israel. As offspring of an adulterous history. Adultery in the Bible is, in spiritual terms, is cheating on your covenant with God. Cheating on God is adultery in spiritual terms. So he calls Israel the offspring of adultery, meaning a nation of people who are the offspring of their history as a, as a nation of adultery with God. Verse 4, against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open, your wide, open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? He pictures the nation of Israel as sticking their tongue out at God in rebellion. Verse 5, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags. He's referencing here their worship of false gods with an inflamed passion, lust in other words. And he makes mention, of course, of the fact that they slaughtered their own children in child sacrifice as a part of these uh, ancient uh, rituals of, of pagan sacrifice. Then he goes on six among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are they are your lot. Even to them, you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain, you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice, referring again here to their worship of false temples and altars and so on. Verse eight, behind the door and the doorposts, you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide. You have made an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. In verse 8, God mentions the doorpost. That's a reference back to Deuteronomy 6, 9, if you know the law, where he has commanded the, the Jews to be mindful of his law by posting the words of the law on the doorposts of their homes as a reminder. And he makes a fleeting reference to that by saying, what you've been posting on your door frames are symbols to false gods instead of using that doorpost to put my law, as I expected That's what he's implying here when he says you've set up your sign, not my sign, your sign, on the door and on the doorposts. And then he uses references to prostitution, sleeping around. A wide bed is a reference to someone who lets anyone in to their bed, so to speak. Pagan worship did often involve prostitution, literally, but the symbology is really the point here. You're sleeping around on me as an unfaithful wife in spiritual terms. That's the history of the nation of Israel. Verse 9, he says, you journeyed to the king. The word king there in Hebrew is Molech, which is the king, the pagan god of the Ammonites. And as a result of what they do, they've sent their own envoys to Sheol. So verse 10, you were tired out by the length of your road, yet you did not say, it is hopeless. You found renewed strength. Therefore, you did not faint. So no matter how long they pursued this false path of pagan worship, of idolatry, they never seemed to tire of their own rebellion. And as a result, they kept finding renewed strength in their disobedience, and their desire. So, at the outset of this chapter, we talked about the rapture for the saints that begins the time of tribulation. It doesn't necessarily begin it in the sense that tribulation starts because of the rapture. We just know that, biblically speaking, the rapture precedes the time of judgment. We don't know that they're necessarily on the same day. There could be a period of time between them. The Bible isn't specific on that. We just know the order. Then we know in the text we just read, God goes out of the moment of talking the rapture in in this Old Testament passage, and he begins talking about the sins of Israel, begins recounting the sins of Israel. Now, the next chapter we're going to talk about begins a section where God, we already know, is going to describe how Israel receives double for her sins. That's what's coming in chapter 58. They're going to receive a double payment. We're told that's quite a payment for what you just saw me read in chapter 57. Those sins, God says, should I relent when you're treating me this way? The obvious answer is no, I'm not going to relent. That sets up chapter 58, because what he's going to now describe is what he's prepared to do in chapter 58 and beyond as payment, double payment. The tribulation, in other words, verse 11 of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought. Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. How long has God been silent with the nation of Israel? Since Christ. Christ is the only way in which he speaks to the world now, and they've ignored Christ, so they've had no revelation. They've had no new knowledge. They've had no prophet. They've had nothing that they could turn to as a nation to say God is still with them or speaking to them. Think about how an orthodox Jew must feel looking back to the last prophet they recognize, which is Malachi. So 2,400 years or so since the last prophet ever spoke to Israel, now you understand better why so many in the Jewish culture have gone away from the orthodoxy and become just secular. It's as if the religion that they've been taught is nothing but an ancient myth, for it has no contemporary impact for them. There's nothing to point to recently. All we can point to in their mind is the Moses of thousands of years ago or the David or the Solomon. If those things were ever true, they obviously don't happen anymore. That's their point of view. And so there is this time of silence that it appears from what Isaiah writes that God has said will be by his design. He was silent for a time, and they do not fear him anymore. Verse 12. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. This is a sarcastic statement, so you have to read it that way. You should read the word righteousness in quotes. Since Israel's deeds we know are anything but righteous but they believed them to be. Which element of Judaism would argue that they have righteous deeds today and should profit by them? And would expect God, for that matter, to account them? Orthodox Jews, those who still try to keep the law. For that group, he's saying, I will declare your righteous deeds, but they will not profit you. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you but the wind will carry all of them up and a breath will take them away and he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. So the nation, he says, will cry out. He lets them turn to the idols that they have, but those idols are going to be swept away. And in verse 14, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. He's alluding here in the verses I read, 13 and 14, he's alluding to what he's prepared to do when he comes out of his silence and begins again to speak to the nation of Israel, he doesn't come speaking kind words. When he first shows up, he will cause them to cry out in a way that they will see the folly of all their idol worship. And idol worship today, remember, takes different forms. You don't have to look for someone with a little altar in their house with little stick figures, right? Their idol is something they turn to in defense of their own righteousness. And if they turn to it, it's an idol. And in some cases, you're talking about the Orthodox Jews today turning to their own law in that sense, in the sense of an idol, in the way that they turn to it for their own righteousness. And then he says, look at verse 14. He says, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way. Does that sound familiar? Reminiscent of something. John the Baptist, doesn't it? It will be said in the same time frame that they are crying out. It will be said these words. That is a time. That, apparent, that we know is tribulation. We've already covered that. This is all set in that time frame. Look at the words of Malachi 4, 5. God says to Malachi, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that they will not come and smite the lamb with a curse so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Building on that in Luke, we know that we hear this described. Luke 117, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him. That's John the Baptist before Christ in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We know John the Baptist came in preparation for Christ's first coming, but we're told here he did it in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. Those words in the power of or in the spirit of is intended to differentiate him from Elijah. He himself says in John's gospel, I am not Elijah. He never claimed to be. We're told in Malachi, it will be Elijah who comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord is not the time of Christ's first coming. It is the time immediately before Christ's second coming. So there is an Elijah, the true Elijah, yet still to come back before that time of Christ's return he will come to do the same thing that John the Baptist did in a lesser way before Christ's first coming. If you think of it in typology, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah, just as Christ's first coming is a type of his second coming. One is lesser in degree than the other for its ultimate purpose. John the Baptist turned a certain amount of people to Christ in the first coming, not everybody. Elijah will call the whole world to Christ in his second coming. One way or the other, they'll all come to know him. When Christ came the first time, he came to, to bring the gospel, not to judge. second time he comes, he comes to judge and put all things under subjection. So there is a, a lesser to greater relationship between the two. When I see this reference in, in Isaiah now, Isaiah fifty seven fourteen, I believe what you're seeing is Isaiah alluding to the time of tribulation to be the time when we know there will be this thing being said Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. It seems reminiscent of the call that Elijah himself is said to have, making straight paths for the Lord, making crooked paths straight. And if that's true, then we're seeing Isaiah speaking of how Elijah will be the one saying these things in that day. So tribulation having begun, the rapture having happened already, Israel at the height of its apostasy with a strong Orthodox element that has emerged. We know that from other texts of scripture, they will have their temple back in in place again on the mount. So we know they'll be actively engaged for the first time in 2000 plus years in temple worship again. Active Orthodox Judaism, and yet it's all false. It's not worshiping the Messiah. They don't know him yet. And in 14, we have a voice calling people to prepare for the way of the Lord. Prepare my people, he says. That seems to fit with all that we've seen elsewhere in Scripture. Verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever and whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I've made. So Christ is now seen in verse 15, dwelling on high for the sake of those who are contrite in heart. That fits in this timeline. It returns our focus to Christ again, which we would expect. This is the last chapter of the suffering servant piece. So you would expect him him to be present in the text somewhere because it's about Christ in this section. So here he is coming out in the text again. He will be on earth. So we know this is speaking of how he comes back to rule. So this puts us at the end of tribulation. So if I were to take the events of this chapter up to this point, up to verse 15, and I were to put them on a timeline, they all go perfectly in sequence. Rapture, the beginning of, of Israel now uh, in, in evil orthodoxy. Evil meaning it's, un, it's not true faith in the living Messiah. It's a kind of false faith. You see references to tribulation and and suffering. You see references to God bringing judgment. You see references to an Elijah of sorts. It all lines out. And at the very end of that timeline, you have Christ ruling. It's a nice, pretty picture synced up. But look at verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me. What does that sound like? Does that ring a bell? Somewhere else in Scripture you may have heard, for I will not contend forever. Maybe Genesis chapter 6. I will not strive forever with man's spirit. That's a reference to the fact that in that day, he says, I can't live with this sin unchecked forever. Striving is a, is a, a sense of contending. God doesn't contend with anybody, right? He allows contention only because he chooses not to act against it. So he says, I'm not going to allow that forever. And he takes action in Noah. Here you see him saying something similar again. He says, if I were to allow it forever, the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I've made. In other words, just the sheer mayhem of tribulation and all that's going on would eventually bring everyone to an end. I think it's similar to what Christ says in Matthew, where if those days had not been cut short, there's a sense there that the world and all that's in it can't put up with what God's pouring out indefinitely. So he brings it to its proper conclusion. He says, because he will not always be angry. It's It's a temporary kind of anger. He brings judgment to an end. Verse 17, Because of the iniquity of the unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Who is him? Because it's a him reference and not a her reference. I would have to say it's not the nation Israel, but it's the Jew within Israel, the individual Jew, which would take a male sense in in the text. So because of the iniquity of him, the Jew, his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him, the Jew, the nation, in other words. I hid my face and was angry. How did he strike Israel? If you see this as a summary comment of sorts, you look further back than just tribulation. You would go all the way back to the time of the temple in AD 70. That there was an anger for their iniquity. He struck them. Then it was followed by a period of silence. That's why he says, I turned my hid my face and I was angry. So they were struck, set out of the land, temple destroyed, nation crumbled, thousands of years of exile. God quiet. He's angry. But his anger burns to a point where he then culminates it in tribulation and follows it up with a healing. Culminating is the way he brings it to a conclusion. So we are reaching closer and closer to that point every day. And he says the disobedient Jew remained in this state of turning away in the way of his heart, he says in verse 17, throughout this entire time. That's consistent with what Paul says God expected when he wrote Romans. In Romans 11, he says they have been hardened. There is a few that knew the Lord, but the rest have been hardened. And the intent is that the Jew as a whole would be turned away and stay that way for this period of silence as God goes about leaving them in this state as a part of his anger. But then he eventually returns to them and he heals them. Where would you say the beginning of the return is? If he has struck them, turned his back, left them silent and hardened, what's the first sign we see of God turning back to the Jew? The 144,000. Until chapter seven of Revelation, there's been no mass conversion of Jews in history since God turned his back on them. In fact, more than just a mass conversion, That means that at the point that the 144,000 come to faith, as far as I can tell, they represent the only believers on earth in that moment because anyone who was a believer prior to that was raptured. And until they exist, there's no evangelism because there's no evangelist. The first evangelism, they're called the first fruits if you look in Revelation. They're called the first fruits of tribulation. The first fruits are 144,000 Jewish men who come to faith. Now, it's not enough to bring the nation to faith. That's not the point yet. It's the turning point, though. And for the next few years they're evangelizing the world even as they're being persecuted and then at the very end of that seven years he then culminates this exp- this process of pouring out double for their sin bringing the world into this time of turmoil and then eventually bringing israel back to the place he wants them to be at the very last day what i'm pointing out here is that isaiah in this very succinct chapter is addressing the sun. it's still within the the, the part of his book that dresses the sun. But the son's focus here has already started to fade a little bit. He is the one making all of this possible. He is the one who will rule at the end. But he's already starting to talk about how the world will be turned by God's favor at a point in time. And now the question begins, how does God accomplish all that? Well, the answer is his spirit. The spirit becomes the focus now in chapter 58 and onward. What is the way we know we're leaving one of these sections and coming into the next? What was the little tag that he always inserted? No peace for the wicked. What happens to the wicked, right? There's always that little tagline that makes us remember that he is ready to, to, to move on by reminding the, the world that there is judgment for wickedness. Look at the last two verses. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. I think that's describing Louisiana right now. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So that tells us we have just left a section of Second Isaiah the symmetry and the precision of this book always amazes me, right? That it, that it carries all this together so carefully. Okay, so that's 57. Look now at the beginning of the Holy Spirit section. Remembering the theme here, double payment for sins and the fact that it centers on tribulation. Verse 1, cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. So there is a commission here to declare to Israel her sins. Who is receiving the commission to declare her sins? It's unnamed. So it's an unnamed thing or person who's being told to declare this. When an actor in Scripture goes unnamed, sometimes that means we're talking about the Holy Spirit. It's not always true. I don't mean to say it's a perfect rule, but there is a general principle in Scripture that when the the actor in Scripture is not named, It's often because it's the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is never named when he is shown as an actor in somewhere in Scripture. For example, Genesis 24, the servant who goes to get a bride for Isaac is an unnamed actor in that story. That actor is a picture of the Holy Spirit going to get a bride for the son. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? He brings a bride out of the world, brings it back to his son. Isaac in that story is a picture of Christ. Similarly in Ruth. When we hear about the servant of Boaz who introduces Ruth to Boaz, Ruth is the church, Boaz is Christ, who introduces the church to Christ? The Holy Spirit, the servant of Boaz, is unnamed. There's a principle in Scripture then that when the actor is the Holy Spirit, the text goes out of the way, in fact, to never name him. That's because the Spirit is not a personage that can be localized and thought of in that way. So I think that's the reason why Scripture does it. Does this prove we're looking at the Holy Spirit? No, and I'm not saying it proves it but it certainly gets me thinking like it might be the Spirit. And so I read the rest of the text wondering, am I looking at the Holy Spirit being called here to make this pronouncement to the world? Verse 2, Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways. As a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and do not see you? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. So this is spoken now at the last there about from the point of view of the nation of Israel themselves. Remember, Orthodox Judaism rises again in tribulation. Hard for us to really imagine that right now. You don't think of Jews as being super orthodox. If they are, they got the hats and the beards and they're weird. I mean, even even to us, they represent sort of a fringe element. Never mind the Jews themselves, they see that again as a fringe. In the last days of tribulation, that fringe becomes the dominant expression of Judaism in the world. If you're not willing to be orthodox and stand out and go to the temple and do those things, who do you eventually become in the last days? 666, right? You take the mark of the beast, you fade into the woodwork with the rest of the world that doesn't believe. You have the ones who believe in Christ as a result of the 144,000. They're persecuted, we're told. You have those who remain true to the commandments of God, the Jews who remain orthodox in their temple worship, and they refuse the mark of the beast, and they're persecuted. Then you have everyone else. So orthodox Judaism becomes the full expression of Judaism in that last day. They are the ones who seek me day by day, in verse 2, delight to know my ways, thinking they've done righteousness not forsaking the ordinance of God, the law. They ask, they appeal to God, they delight in his nearness, they're fasting and the whole time they're saying, we're doing all these things, how come you're not showing yourself to us? Why aren't you rewarding us for all this orthodox behavior in these last days? Verse 4, God answers them. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I chose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Now look at some of the things he takes offense with. Sackcloth, ashes, bowing one's head like a reed. How do reeds bow? You ever seen like a cattail really weighed down with water? So think of a super exaggerated bow repeatedly. Think of all the sackcloth and ashes. What is all that a sign of? Or what does that really picture in your mind? Outward form, ritual, piousness, religiosity. But it's empty inside, right? It's all a show. It's all just ritual. And God says, you want that to be acceptable to me? You want me to look upon that and actually like it? Is that what you're saying? You think that's going to appeal to me? He says, no. Look what he says in verse 6. Is this not the fast which I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness? To undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So when he says to them, you need some credit here for your fasting, let me tell you what kind of fast I'm looking for. I want you to fast from evil. I want you to fast from selfishness and self-centeredness. I want you to fast from all the ways in which you offend me. In other words, fasting as a rule is not about how you deprive your body of things you enjoy. It's a self-discipline effort which ultimately should arrive at a obedient walk in all ways. Not just that you, you know, take upon yourself this ritual for a while and expect to get rewarded for it. You must not only strive to do righteous things... But you must strive to be righteous. And he describes what is effectively true worship. This is in the same vein as James when he says true worship or true religion is to go to visit orphans and widows and the like. He's not saying those are works of righteousness which make you righteous. He's saying those are the true works of somebody who has a selfless interest in serving God. Because to go after widows and orphans gives you nothing of a return. They can never pay you back. They can never help you. There's nothing in it for you if that's the way you spend your time. Verse 9, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you who will rebuild those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will rise up the ancient foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, detesting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So those who are humble in the way that Lord describes here and call upon the name of the Lord, they will see his pleasure. We know this refers to the time of the kingdom by some of the details that are in this text. Like verse 12, they rebuild the ancient ruins. That's the temple of the millennial reign. They restore the streets of the city. That's Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. And to Israel, God says, keep the Sabbath in a true way. Think of the fasting example a minute ago. They were fasting like crazy, but it didn't mean anything to God because it wasn't the true form of fasting, which is a heartfelt response to God, not a physical act. Similarly, for him here to say, keep my Sabbath, delight in the holy day, don't turn, says here, turn your foot away, meaning don't trample holy ground by desecrating it. There was a story I read about how Jews in the, in the Sabbath, in synagogues, would commonly conduct business during the, the service, you know, eat afterward in the foyer or whatever. That would be a way they could get around the Sabbath. They were in the synagogue celebrating the Sabbath, but then they do business on the side with each other and make use of the day. And that's what he says here when he says, refrain from doing your pleasure. Your pleasure means kind of conducting your business on my holy day. Don't recite empty, meaningless prayers and so on. Keeping in the Sabbath in this way is symbolic of keeping the entire law, according to Scripture. It's a heartfelt response to faith, not a means to faith. So what he's describing here is to the Jew who is zealous in that last day in the temple of the tribulation. He makes this promise. He says, if you were ever to reach a point where your response to me in all of these ordinances and rituals is honest, truly heartfelt, truly directed toward me in the right way. He says, you will see me take delight in that and I will make you ride the heights of the earth. You will be the chief nation again on the earth. How do you get from where they are with the description that we saw earlier in chapter 57, evil everywhere, how do you get from that to what he's saying they have to do here? The Holy Spirit. See, the trick is not to read the text too narrowly and see it as a recipe where he's saying to them, start doing the right things and I'll be happy with you. He's saying... This has to be the countenance of your life. This has to be who you are, not just what you do. And you will see good things happen. That's the nature of spiritual change. It is not about changing what you do. It's about changing who you are. And as a result of you being a different man or woman in Christ, then new behaviors will follow. He's describing how they get there. And who is the unnamed actor in making that possible? The Spirit. Remember, you have the Spirit described in John 3 as... The force of God in, in the world, not seen in and of itself, but seen by its effect. The wind, in other words. You don't know where it is, where it's coming from, where it's going, but you see the wind, the leaves blowing. You know it's there because of its effect. That's the nature of the Spirit's ministry in general. You see that reflected in this section everywhere we go. So we're watching his effect here, his cry. What do you make of the fact that as this chapter started, I suggested that this cry to Israel to declare her sins to her might be a reference to the Holy Spirit. If that's true, what function of the Holy Spirit is reflected in that verse? What, what function of his work is reflected in that verse? The verse that says he was to call out to the nation about their sin. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The role of the Holy Spirit to bring to mind, in men's, into men's minds, the sin of their life. Convicting them of sin. All right. But then he says he will save them if they are in this new state. What pattern are we seeing in these early chap- this early section, this early chapter of the Holy Spirit section? You hear the role is to call out sin to convict us, then to reveal the need for salvation. Example, look at 59 as we begin 59, a well-known chapter in, all of the, in Isaiah because of its description here of the sin of Israel, but not just of Israel, of all men. Look at the pattern from the point of view of the Holy Spirit. This is where a student has to work a little bit in the text of Isaiah. Rather than see it myopically, you know what that word means? Narrowly. Keep in mind that you know this section is about the Holy Spirit. Knowing that, trusting that for a minute, look at the text from that point of view and ask yourself, how do I see the Holy Spirit's work reflected in the text? In chapter 58, it was in this sense of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the illumination of the need for salvation convicting of self-righteousness look at 59 behold the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear all right the Lord can save and he does hear Israel's pleas because it's mentioned earlier they've been crying out to him how come you're not paying attention to my fast how come you're not down here listening to us we're doing all these right things and the response in 59 hey it's not like I can't save you and I certainly can hear you if I want to So the problem is not ability. Verse 2. Here's the problem. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sound like Romans? And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously, and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Isn't that a great picture in verse 56? It's in the same way, who's the one who, oh, what tangled web, is that Shakespeare? Oh, what tangled web we weave? That's what he's saying here. Their evil is like a web that catches them. And then he takes the metaphor and he moves it and he says, and they can't expect to cover themselves, think Eve and and Adam in the garden, their embarrassment over their sin, they want to cover themselves. If it were possible, they want to cover their sin. He's saying they can't take and turn this work of theirs in verse 6. They can't cover themselves with these works as if they could make that web they've weaved, whatever, into a clothing. He's throwing the metaphors back and forth here to create this wonderful picture of people who, in their sinful work, are like hatching snake eggs. Now you've got a bigger problem. It's like the, the problems you create in your sin just multiply and then take off on their own, and you can't even stamp them out, like trying to kill the snakes that you're creating by your sin. That's one image. They weave a spider's web. That's the Shakespeare image. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. So at the moment they try to crush their own mistakes, they only end up with another snake. Their webs will not become clothing. They can't hide themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, he says in verse 6, and an act of violence in their hands. This is why Isaiah has such a reputation for being a master of the the language he's he's taught in. Verse 7, their feet run to evil. And they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. So these are the results of sin. And as he said at the beginning here, what is separating them from God is not that they aren't doing enough righteous works. It's that they can only do the iniquity of their life that, that, that we know them for, the sin of their life. And that's the separation. That's setting up the problem, if you will. The problem we have is there's a separation between us and God, and that separation is due to sin. What happens in response to the conviction we receive from the Holy Spirit? What is the proper response when someone is being convicted by the Holy Spirit over their sin? Thinking 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow... That is, according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You have to feel sorry, not in the sense of, oh, I'm sorry I did that, but sorrow in the sense of a recognition of just how sinful you are before God. In order to be repentant about it and sufficiently aware of the need for salvation that you would turn to it, the Holy Spirit produces that whole process in our hearts. The sorrow that leads through a repentance to process into salvation is the will of God. When it's sorrow, just because I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I made my marriage a wreck. I'm sorry I've had all these problems and consequences. That's worldly sorrow. It leads to death because really, if you think of it this way, it leads to death because it doesn't lead to salvation. Because it can't produce salvation, it must always lead you to death, eternal death. So now we see something interesting in the text up till verse eight. What is the pronomial subject? It's third person, right? Speaking of Israel, but generally you can include all men in this, right? Israel is not unique. But it's the pronomial subject is Israel. Verse nine. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. So now, who's speaking? God talked about somebody in the first part of the chapter. Now who's speaking in this last part? Who is we? It's a plural, first of all, so it can't be Isaiah. Who in tribulation is saying this? It's still the Jewish people talking here about the Spirit's work for Israel in the time of tribulation. That's the whole point of this last section. So now, what does God do in response to the one who confesses his sin when under the influence of the Holy Spirit? We are like blind men. We are turned from God. We need salvation, but it is far from us. What is God's response? According to Scripture, look in verse 14. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. If there is a conviction of sin sufficient by the Holy Spirit's power to bring a repentant heart, then there is salvation. What do they know? How do they see salvation arrive for them? Unique to all time in history. They get the one experience we all would have loved to have seen at our own moment of salvation. When we come to a moment of repentance, know that the Lord is Lord and believe and come to faith, he comes. He shows up and says, nice to see you. We all want that. We will get it one day. But they see it in their moment because they happen to be those at the very end of tribulation who experience it. And I can confirm this with you if you just look at the text at the end. Verse 20. Did that ring a bell? The Redeemer will come to Zion and will turn or remove all ungodliness from Jacob. That's the way Paul says it in Romans 11. Remember Romans 11, 25, at the very end of Romans 11:25, he tells the church in Rome, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Quoting from Isaiah 59, 20. Paul, in other words, says, I want you to understand that there is a plan in which the nation of Israel as a whole is saved in some future day. All of them in that day. And he's referring back to this one verse. Remember, when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament verse, he invokes the entire context naturally. He expects you to bring the entire context of that verse to bear on his point. So what was his point? Israel has not been forsaken. God will come to their rescue one day. He chooses to bring this verse as his proof verse. So I look at the context of 59 and what do I see in 59? This big picture of the spirit coming to Israel, causing them to be convicted, bringing them to repentance, and then Christ's return to save them as a result. The, the, The Zechariah 12 verse 10 moment that we've talked about here several times. When he says in verse 10 of chapter 12, Zechariah, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That bitter weeping is the, con- the sorrow that accompanies the repentance that leads to salvation. And that's what he's describing in Zechariah. That's what we see happening here in Isaiah 59. Then in 59, 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit, which is upon them is upon you and my words, which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. And as we've seen before, this now is the thing Isaiah always talks about any time the redemption of Israel is brought up in the moment. And that is that they will have a covenant, be in the Lord permanently in this covenant. Now, there's a a reference at the end of 21 I'm going to delay talking about until we get to another reference on the same point later in the book. And that is at the very end of 21 where it says, My words will not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. Well, if these are the Jews of the last moment of tribulation, those references beg a question about, well, are they going to be having babies There's another point later in in the rest of Isaiah that talks about it. We'll deal with it there. It comes up again in in more fully in in a later point. So now look at the launch he makes into the kingdom discussion. This is a natural transition. He's talking about the kingdom because he just described Christ's return. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, And deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your glory. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. And the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephaph. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bring and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you, the rams of Nebaioth. Nebaioth. I think I said that right. Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up from acceptance on my altar and shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. So this kingdom will be structured with Israel at the center of the world, Christ ruling. All the Gentile nations of the earth exist to serve Israel and come streaming to it. Classic kingdom picture. Verses 10 through 22. Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you and in my favor, I've had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their king kings led in procession for the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breasts of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver, and instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, and I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all the people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. So there is the picture of the kingdom, all these good things coming to Israel And even, I think, in some verses, an allusion to the new heavens and new earth that follow the kingdom because of the reference there to being no sun and no moon. Those are not true for the kingdom. They're true for the following state after the kingdom. Now, chapter 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Quick pause. You remember where that's from elsewhere in Scripture? It's in the Gospel of Luke where Christ is starting his ministry following the baptism of John. And he goes into Nazareth and he does a teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. This is where the famous you're never a prophet in your own hometown problem showed up. He goes to Nazareth to begin his ministry formally, goes into the temple, I mean, sorry, into the synagogue, and that day they happened to be reading out of the scroll of Isaiah, and they happened to be reading the beginning of chapter 61, and as it happened, they invited this visiting rabbi to be the one to speak to them that day. So Jesus got up, read the scroll, and sat down, and his only commentary, this is his preaching, if only you were so lucky to get a preaching this short. His preaching was, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And he was done. Now, what's interesting about Luke, when he said this in Luke, is he didn't read all of chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. He read all of verse 1, and he read half of verse 2, and he stops. Because verse 2 includes a small piece that's only relevant for the second coming. He came in his first coming to declare the favorable year of the Lord, the jubilee of the Lord, but he did not come in his first coming to have a day of vengeance for our God. So he does not read that part of the verse. He stops before he reads it. Now, remember, in his day, they didn't have verse numbers to the words, so he could stop anywhere he wanted without causing anybody in their Bible to get a little anxious and wonder why he didn't finish. So chapter 61 begins there with the first coming. It transitions at verse 2 into a second coming discussion and stays there. Look at verse 3. This is still talking about the one who comes, Under the spirit's guidance, what does he do in verse three to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. So that's some of the jobs we may have in the millennial. Taking care of Israel's flocks. But you will be... that's no commentary. I'm just mentioning it in case you want to know. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. That's Israel. You will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Because of Israel's sins, the Lord will give them a recompense upon his return. That's the judgment of tribulation. But it's followed by the giving of the new covenant. He's creating there at the very end in verse 8, The understanding that I love justice, so there's still penalty, recompense for your sin. That comes in this double portion. But with that comes a double portion of gain in the millennial as well. And that is based on an everlasting covenant that he has made with them. While you and I have received the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31, they have yet to receive it as a nation. They don't receive it until the end of tribulation. Verse 9, then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants. In the midst of these peoples, all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. How does he do that? And what method does the Lord bring the world to a point where he kind of causes it to spring forth righteousness and praise? It's through the Spirit, isn't it? One at a time today, all at once with the nation of Israel at the end. You know, the culminating of all that is everyone in the kingdom now knowing the Lord and praising Him because of who they are. That reference to offspring in this context refers to the offspring of the nation of Israel meaning the descendants of the nation who are the Jews of that day. I mean, think about it. The offspring of Israel are the ones who will shout with joy, who are the ones who are said to be the ones who are blessed. The ones who are the offspring in that last day are the ones who are going to be said to be blessed. They're the ones who were there for that last moment. They were the Jews who got saved. Remember in Matthew 24, 13, when uh, Jesus is talking about the last days of tribulation and he's talking to the Jews in that discourse, in the Olivet Discourse, and he says to the Jewish listener, but the one, the Jew, in other words, who endures to the end, he will be saved. That endurance reference is to the fact that if you are a Jew in the time of tribulation and you make it all the way to the last day, if you endure to the end, you'll be assured of salvation because that's the day when all Jews are saved for sure. Can't be assured of salvation any day short of that, but if you're there on the last day, you'll be part of this group that turns to God under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. That's not a general promise for you and I or anyone else, right? That's a, that's a reference to tribulation. That's what it's talking about in Matthew 24. So 61 is a, still in the context of the Spirit, is a reference to how the Spirit brings Christ into the world in his first coming and uses him to bring the message of the gospel, good news, But then also in the last days, how the Spirit of the Lord is the one who will cause the offspring of Israel, these ones who are alive on the last day, to receive the Lord, to be the ones who will get these blessings, a double portion. These are the ones that sprout forth and cause the world to to declare righteousness, praise the Lord's name, and so on. Another way to look at it is their response instigates the beginning of the Messianic kingdom in which the world is praising Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the patience and for the stamina and for the opportunity to study, as always. Thank you, Father, for the health and the the strength of many who would be here tonight and perhaps for others who may come next week. We pray, Lord, to finish our study as we began it in the spirit, assured, Father, of your presence and your work here, confident of the truth and and the importance of your word and determined to submit ourselves to it. May you bring us back one final night to complete this study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.